This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm so delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on the theme of back to the office, maintaining mental health and well-being in the aftermath of traumatic events. And we've certainly experienced quite a few of those over the last 14 to 16 months. Uh, But since May 2020, we witnessed the collision of two forces that experts suggest have worked against people in terms of mental health. Certainly the coronavirus pandemic is one we often talk about, as well as uh, several widespread tragedies that have foregrounded systemic racism and discrimination around the world. Together, these have been referred to as two pandemics, and some would argue there's probably two other pandemics that we would add to this equation as well. But especially when we're talking about the experiences of people from underrepresented groups, we've certainly seen a spotlight on um, how coronavirus, as well as issues of systemic racism, have have affected those groups particularly. Um, And certainly from people who are from underrepresented minority groups themselves, we've heard them reporting, feeling as if they've been hit with a quote-unquote double whammy of trauma, so to speak. So joining me today are two very, very special guests who will help us understand what these events and others have meant to our mental health and well-being, and they will provide us with strategies for moving forward in a healthy way. So first, we have my dear friend, Dr. Tiffany Johnson, who is an assistant professor of organizational behavior at the Scheller College of Business at Georgia Tech. And she's also founder of the Institute for Good Work, which is a nonprofit organization. Dr. Johnson's research focuses on how experiences of inequity and stigma in the workplace facilitate inclusion and well-being or a lack thereof. Uh, Dr. Johnson has published this research in leading psychology and management journals. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. Next, we have Dr. Hamad Encho, who is a licensed psychologist and executive director of the Incho Behavioral Group, which is a New York and Georgia-based psychotherapy private practice, frontline trauma response, and global behavioral health consulting firm. Before founding the Incho Behavioral Group, uh, Dr. Incho served as a behavioral scientist in the Elite Epidemic Intelligence Service of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC, and that's where he developed, he deployed internationally with outbreak rapid response teams. Dr. Encho also served in the Medical Service Corps of the United States Navy. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Encho. Dr. Johnson, I'm super excited for our conversation today. Thank you so much. And so I want to begin because certainly this podcast theme has always been diversity, right? It's it's called Leading Diversity at Work. Um, And I want to talk about the opportunity that we have, I think, as scholars and as practitioners, as leaders, to make sure that we're foregrounding issues of mental health and well-being as part of this conversation. But I would like to hear from both of you why you think issues of mental health and well-being are pertinent to a broader conversation about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm going to start with Dr. Johnson. Uh, You study topics related to workplace diversity and inclusion, and you also teach a course at Georgia Tech 
focused on work equity and wellness. And I had the pleasure of guest speaking in that course, that class recently. Can you share with us some of your insights on the connections among uh, mental health, well-being, and diversity and inclusion in the workplace? Yeah, happy to. And first, thank you so much for um, for having us, for having me on on this episode. It's it's a real honor to be able to speak about like the intersection of all of these different topics. So honestly, and I think you probably understand this as an inductive researcher, the the way in which I was led to thinking about the intersection of diversity, equity, well-being in the workplace was from a research participant. So I, since I was in graduate school, I have always been interested in the micro foundations of equity or inequity in organizations, as you already spoke to. And I have studied that through the lens of stigma theory. And so stigma theory is, would, divide, would define stigma as, in one way, a devaluation. So a lot of the questions that I ask are about what happens in workplaces, like between people, in interactions that perpetuate a broader uh, belief about devaluation for underrepresented groups? And what are ways in which these kind of societal beliefs of devaluation can be dismantled through workplaces? And so I've studied this amongst, when it comes to race, class, ethnicity, um, and disability, Mm -hmm. and sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And so, when I was studying this when I was in graduate school, so almost 10 years ago now, and this participant was like, you know what you should study? You need to study trauma. And I was like, (laughs) okay, this is really, I was like, okay. So I followed the comment. I, I followed that. I asked her more about it. I went back to my, to, that was in the field. So I went back to Pennsylvania. I was at Penn State at, at, at the time, created a folder on trauma and well-being, mm-hmm. and went back to the literature and started understanding how does stigma, how does it, an, an inequity intersect with trauma, perhaps, or well-being at work. And it made, it really did, there, there are connections in stigma literature, because if we think about devaluation, we think there are, in like the seminal pieces on stigma, they it speaks to a lot of the kind of psychological outcomes, like feeling threatened, feeling anxiety, feeling a sense of fear. Mm-hmm. And so what I realized in feeling like you have been through something that is traumatic, something that is destabilizing. Mm-hmm. And so what I realized was that she was on point. She was right on point. And also I began to realize that um, historically, the, the, our, our field of management or the field of IO psychology, this our like understanding of work has been um, embedded with kind of trauma. Like mm-hmm. our understanding of work has been embedded with trauma. And for me, I thought it would be really important to take uh, historical perspectives to it in this new class that I'm teaching about work equity and wellness, because in that class, students are, we are all being invited to like reimagine what work would look like if we didn't think about diversity on one side and wellness on the other. Mm -hmm. And we thought about them as they've always been intersecting in this country Mm -hmm. when it comes to work. And if we begin to think about that, what might happen in our in our workplaces? And I'll say, I know you mentioned Stella in Como. Mm-hmm. She put her, she was a speaker for an AOM 
uh, panel last year, and she suggested the production of Difference as a really good book mm-hmm. to offer to students when teaching diversity, equity, and inclusion in workplaces. So I got it because anything she says to do, I will do. <laughs> right? And I realized that was a really helpful resource for me to begin understanding the historical perspectives of the ways in which well-being has been kind of, or the lack thereof, has been cooked into inequity and our structures of inequity, and especially when it when it comes to work. Super fascinating. Um, looking forward to hearing more about that. But I want to turn to Dr. Encho. Uh, so you're a licensed clinical psychologist, and you maintain an active psychotherapy private practice. Um, so I'm curious uh, around how issues related to diversity in the workplace related to or unrelated to the themes that Dr. Johnson is is raising for us, how that shows up in your therapy sessions and in your practice, certainly more broadly. Sure. Well, because there are actually so few uh, clinical psychologists of color and people of color tend to seek out therapists of color, Mm -hmm. our caseloads tend to be almost entirely people of color. Mm. And very frequently, my clients are using the therapeutic to process race-related challenges that they're experiencing, they're encountering at work. Um, Most frequently, it presents as feelings of isolation in the office or feeling as if they're not part of the team or do not have access to professional, uh, valuable relationships that their majority race peers do. Mm -hmm. Other times, I've used therapy to process microaggressions or outright racism experienced Mm -hmm. in the workplace, such as, for example, Um, physicians who constantly have their ability questioned in their workplace, specifically the hospitals, because she or he is Black um, or a person of color. And and actually, you know, another issue I've encountered both back when I was serving as a psychologist in the military and currently in private practice is the struggle many of my clients face about how they wear their hair. Mm-hmm. and what hairstyles management deems as professional in the workplace. I've often had um, sessions where clients will process the, the painful need that they feel to straighten their hair before an important, an, before an important meeting because like, they'll say, I want the focus to be on me and mm-hmm. what I'm saying and not the difference between our hair, my hair texture and theirs. Mm-hmm. And as we know, a wide variety of studies have identified such experiences as potentially leading to an impaired sense of self, anxiety, depression, all of which can serve to negatively impact work performance. So with all of these things considered, it's very important to me to create this therapeutic space for my clients Mm -hmm. to feel affirmed and make sense of their experiences and to identify strategies that they can assist in navigating through these challenges. So I take, the, I take this work seriously and um, fully, to fully understand how important a space like creating this therapeutic space can be to help my clients not only navigate their personal, but also their professional challenges that they encounter. So Tiffany and I started nodding furiously when you started talking about (laughs) hair in the workplace. I actually just posted about this on LinkedIn the other day on Crown Day, which was July 3rd, right? And so we're trying to pass federally in the U.S. this law that bans discrimination around hair. And I have natural hair, um, as Tiffany has natural hair. And so what that means is, is 
my hair is not chemically straightened. Um, and I think about the different times in my life where I have for the very reason, Dr. Encho, that your, uh, your clients have spoken of, right? Is this idea that um, the focus becomes on your hair, whether it's professional or not, in addition to me just trying to do my job. Um, so I really appreciate that that's entering into your therapeutic space and that you have the capacity to help professionals um, process these events. Tiffany, I, I don't know if you wanted to add something in, uh, but you were also affirming everything Dr. Incho was saying. I was like, yes, because as you were speaking, I was like, yeah, I can recall going to my own therapist and talking to her about some of these things because, for one, just want to affirm the the need for culturally competent um, therapy and to be able to have a, a space to go and talk about these things with someone who who understands. And particularly, I was thinking about this on over the weekend too, stuff about about my own natural hair journey. Yeah. And about how when I decided to go natural about maybe uh, over yeah, about 12 or so years ago, some of the people in my life who were who who I told first, one of their first concerns was work. Yes. Right. Uh huh. It was like, oh, my God, what are you, nobody's going to hire you or what's going to happen when you go to interviews and you have so much hair, but it's I don't know how it's going to work, you know. And so I think that it is such an important part of us being able to show up, being able to make the choice to show up as we want to either with chemically processed hair or without chemically uh, processed hair, but that not weighing into the decision of whether or not we are a valuable employee or a potentially valuable employee. So thank you so much for creating that space for people. So let's talk about other traumas <laughs> that we, we experience. I think certainly outside of, you know, as we're talking about these daily lived experiences of, you know, microaggressions, but also of feeling pressed to alter our physical appearance in ways that are not natural to fit in at work. These are the traumas that people of color and particularly women of color and black women often face. Um, and then if we just sort of add to that, um, certainly since gosh, the spring of 2020, we've all collectively been facing a number of events. Um, but I'm starting to think about professionals returning to physical offices I saw this interesting, a couple of pieces recently, and actually they were focused on uh, people of color and women of color being more hesitant, um, feeling like it's been safer at home for all these reasons that we're just talking about and more. Um, but let's talk for a little bit about professionals who've been slowly returning to physical offices. And clearly we're talking about a class of people who've had the luxury to work at home. We're, we're not talking about who've had to go into work every day. So obviously that's the boundaries of our conversation. But, you know, for some um, companies, they're, they're, they have this phased approach. Um, others are mandating that by September, everyone must return. While we've seen other companies saying, we're going to have this new quote unquote work from anywhere policy. Uh, so Dr. Encho, uh, recently you wrote a, a report for Filene Research Institute. Um, and that report was focused on key challenges and next steps for trauma-informed employee policies and practices, and, and particularly with a focus on credit unions. But as I read it, I thought it was broadly generalizable to most workplaces. I want to understand from your research, what do you felt, what did you feel were some of the key challenges and next steps for companies 
who are trying to get employees to come back to the office, knowing that a lot of employees are feeling, experiencing the weight of the trauma um, that they encountered over the past uh, year, year and a half. Sure. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that report. It was a it's a really exciting opportunity for my firm to partner with Filene and explore how to help credit unions develop policies that will support their staff in the midst of a crisis. Over the course of that study, we interviewed CEOs and HR leads from across the country about their experiences with both the COVID crisis and the social justice movement of the summer of 2020. Then we conducted a qualitative analysis of their experiences. A key return to office challenge that emerged during those interviews was resistance within the workforce for actually returning to the office. Yeah. This was largely due to the fact that many viewed working at home as working out quite well. And yet, while many of the workforce sought to continue working at home, others were exceedingly ready to get back into the office. Mm -hmm. So in attempting to design policy, there was this variation that leadership faced. Mm -hmm. And even further, there are race-related factors, as you mentioned, that have caused the pandemic and the social justice movement to be experienced quite differently across the workforce and can impact the desire to return to the office. And one, one more thing. Lastly, something that we are seeing now is that there are significant differences in vaccination levels nationally, hmm. which in turn can impact staff desire to return to the office. So wide variation in employee experiences, perceptions, mm -hmm. expectations, make it basically impossible to design a, um, a one size fit all policy. Mm -hmm. So the report indicates that in order to contend with these variations, companies should incorporate a trauma informed management strategy approach that encourages leading with flexibility, facilitating open, honest, two-way communication between staff and leadership, and most importantly, to facilitate post-traumatic growth. I would just take a quick second to explain what that is. Yeah, sure. Post-traumatic growth is positive change that results from struggle with challenging circumstances. So when it comes to this return to the office policy we're discussing, post-traumatic growth asks, what can we learn from this period of staff working at home that will improve overall efficiency mm -hmm. and that we can implement within our corporate policy moving forward. I find this super fascinating because uh, as an organizational behavior scholar who studies workplaces and, and certainly takes a positive lens to how do we learn and grow from these experiences, I can't help but recognize that many of our workplaces have not been designed to be as employee friendly as one would like. And I've been somewhat heartened over the last year and a half as, you know, I think, I think part of this is, is sometimes people in, in positions of power need to experience for themselves what it's like to suffer in order for them to begin to implement. And I'm sad that it has to come to that, but I'm, I'm heartened that their own experiences, leaders' own experiences of um, living through a pandemic, um, having to uh, homeschool children under less than ideal circumstances, all the things that we've all experienced has led them to start thinking about policies that we've known forever are important. I mean, 
Dr. Incho, you as a psychotherapist, you know that it's been so important for people to be healthy and well. And, and Dr. Johnson, you as an organizational scholar, you've studied this idea of you know, well-being and how it's important to create environments where people can thrive. I would say that although the pandemic and the, the increased um, evidence of racial injustice has been really hard, it does feel like people have are paying attention more than now than ever before. What do you think, Dr. Johnson? I think that's a really great point. Like thinking about how empathy, um, how the one living through the experience that many employees have been speaking to needing, right, might help to make a shift because I really um, love this idea of kind of that you talked about, Dr. Incho, about having the trauma, what, what is a trauma-informed management strategy? Exactly. A trauma-informed management strategy. I think that that, that is exactly what I have been um, kind of hoping for that can happen more broadly. Because if we think about, because um, and, and, and this is what we've been talking about in, in my class, really, is hoping for like organizations to get to a point where it's it's the norm to think about post-traumatic growth. It's the norm to think about how will we as a workplace be dynamic enough to respond to trauma? Because even though we've had extreme trauma over the past year, year and a half, trauma has always been present. Yeah. Right? People have always been responding and recovering from trauma. And so how can we how can we normalize that inside of the workplace? And so when I think about this idea of returning to work and the desire to not do so, especially among Black people, Black women, people of color. I think about the idea that of trauma being this like destabilizing force mm -hmm. that can affect people's um, uh, feelings of like helplessness, that can impact people feeling like they are competent, that can lead to a lot of stress and anxiety. And these are some of the same things that we think about when it comes to like professional identity. Mm -hmm. Right. Professional identity is connected to feeling adequate and satisfied and, and being satisfied with one's work, with one's role and how one is enacting one's role. But when trauma is has has been happening and when multiple forms and multiple layers of trauma has been happening, we have distrust, helplessness, destabilization, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, this is going to be heightened for folks who are not only experiencing the trauma from the pandemic, but have in their bodies, and some might argue across generation, been experiencing racial trauma as well. And so I, for, for me, I would definitely, I would, I, you know, I'm like, definitely a proponent of changing the foundation of organizations, even though I know that takes a lot of time, yeah. um, maybe more resources and more patience, but in order for the policies and practices to be organic and authentic to the needs of the employee, like you were talking about, mm -hmm. the foundation has to be one in which there is more flexibility. There is more compassion. There is more choice giving and choice making that is allowed in the organization. And recovery is normalized in the organization as well. So I want to come back to something you just said. Um, you talked about trauma across generations. And Dr. Cho started nodding emphatically as well. Can you just help us understand what do you mean by that? And, and how does that show up? And how should we consider that as we're talking about organizations and um, intervening in a way that allows employees to 
be more of their best selves and more of their healthy selves in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So thinking about how, um, so more and more research when it comes to trauma, like there's like personal trauma, collective trauma. And when we think about in like societal level trauma, there's been more research that has been done and it's continuing to be done to demonstrate how the effect of say our ancestors, the people that came before us, even though we may not have experience the exact same experiences that they did, their trauma lives in the body, right? It stays in the body. The body will, will you know, soak it up and we pass through DNA. Mm-hmm. And so they, there's been research on this about and talk about this amongst um, Holocaust survivors and the family of people who have been survivors of the Holocaust who didn't necessarily experience the Holocaust, but have very visceral experiences in their body mm-hmm. when like the threat of that kind of violence, even if it's somebody in the workplace passing down a microaggression. Mm-hmm. That might feel like the same thing that my grandmama experienced or my great-grandmama experienced back in the day when they were experiencing more, more physical and macroaggressions. Okay. And so the idea is that because we may be carrying generations of trauma with us, that we can, that, you know, that's, in my opinion, it feels like something that we need to be more cognizant of in, in, in workplaces as well, because organizations are also intergenerational, right? Yeah. And so I, it feels like a really important piece to consider to me. Dr. Incho, do you want to chime in here and give us your thoughts on certainly anything that uh, Dr. Johnson has said, but what's come up for you as you've been listening to her share her insights? Sure, definitely. So I think the the, the notion of being aware that the individual who shows up at work is not the individual alone. That individual is also representative, a reflection of those who come before or those uh, who she or he's shoulders they're standing upon. And so what does that mean when those shoulders that you're standing upon have experienced extreme trauma or have have encountered great trauma? So for example, uh, a lot of times, because a lot of my clients are, are, uh, predominantly African-American, and you will have individuals who are first-generation professionals, first-generation college, uh, mm. colleges, and they are showing up in spaces, or professional spaces, um, in corporate spaces, where their lived experience, their lived experience, one generation past, their, the experience of their parents, the experience of their grandparents is very different from the experience of their peers, of their um, majority race peers. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean? We often talk about the black tax. Yeah. What, what does it mean when you arrive to work and you're striving to do your best, often in circumstances that weren't always designed to benefit yourself, but at the same time, you have additional responsibilities in regards to family, in regards to um, financial requirements, emotional requirements associated with your family. And so when we're thinking about the intergenerational impact of trauma, it's important very much so to think about it with the perspective of history and going back, but we can also see it just one generation Mm-hmm. from the, the experiences of um, people of color within the workspace currently being very different from their own parents and their own family and feeling in some ways ostracized yeah. from their parents and their families and thinking about the impact that that will have on their emotional self, on their sense of self, 
on their performance within the workplace because all of that translates into how do I how do I perform within my chosen profession. You're taking me back to my own personal experiences as a college student and I will tell you what as as hard as it was so my parents did not go to college they did not have the privilege of attending a, a university. Um, so my sister and I were first um, in our immediate families to attend college. But what was somewhat, I think what normalized the experience for me was that all the other Black people I met and even the Latino people I met in college were all, as I called it, hustling, just like I was working our three work-study jobs and doing what we could to pay for the $500 for books. Um, and so we didn't have, I think, what my students see now is my students are now seeing um, that even within, let's just say, uh, the category of people who define themselves uh, by the by Black or African American or by Lat Latino, um, they're seeing that there are some people who are Black who are doing well, and there are other people who are not, which was not something that I was wrestling with as much. And I think for the students who maybe share my experience of having to send money home or having to, you know, take extra jobs. I guess now they're called gig jobs. We called them something else um, in order to pay for books, in order to pay for, you know, all the things that you need to afford when you're in college. Um, for them, it's seeing they're not just comparing themselves and my students now to um, the white students who were, are more likely to come from means. Um, they're comparing themselves to other students of color um, and trying to make sense of what that looks like, the inequities within categories. So I thought about that so much as you both were talking is um, generations of uh, of trauma. And, and certainly this idea, Dr. Incho, that you talked about is um, when your experience is so vastly different from your parents. I'm also thinking about when your experience is, is so vastly different from somebody who you would think shares your experience because you share a racial background, but then it's not the same. You know, certainly I think it's important and by the tone of what you both have said, you both think it's important for organizations to do more to create policies and practices that allow people to grow post post trauma and to uh, understand that there isn't a one size fits all that we have to treat people as individuals. I also want to talk about and I'm channeling my inner a psychologist here, though I am not one, but um, so much when you talk, Dr. Incho, it reminds me of the people who I've leaned on for support, but also um, had the benefit to learn from, is how much ourselves as individuals, we have the capacity within ourselves to employ strategies that allow us to, to cope better, to thrive better, and to sustain uh, a healthier um, and more well sense of self in the context of the workplace. So I want to talk about strategies that we can employ individually and particularly in our workplace relationships um, that we individually and interpersonally can do um, to support um, each other and ourselves as we deal with these traumas. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Johnson, as you think about strategies, individual strategies, but also interpersonal strategies. What would you recommend as we're trying to all um, feel better uh, and, and perform better and, and enjoy um, the lives that we have, both personally and professionally? I love this question. Um, I would, you know, being a stigma researcher, of course, I, I'm always um, here for destigmatizing mental health support and um, especially in the communities of color in the Black community. So, um, 
would suggest and recommend a form of therapy, mm-hmm. whether it be um, talk therapy or somatic therapy, yoga therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I, I, I used to just be like, everybody should be able to go to therapy. And, and yeah, okay. I think, I think that's, I, I think therapy is really important, but kind of to what Dr. Ancho spoke to earlier in our, in our conversation, really stress, like, again, this idea of choice making, thinking of partnering with a therapist or a psychologist or a psychologist or whoever as someone that you are choosing to like walk alongside you and and to guide and to advise and to help you kind of see yourself in ways that can help you thrive in the workplace. So really looking for someone like not just being chosen, but choosing Choosing a, 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 a psychologist that you feel you can be safe with, that is culturally competent, that understands your professional background, your uh, racial and ethnic um, complexities in a way that can really, really guide you and not induce more shame, right? Just because they're a therapist doesn't mean that they're the best one for you. It's, and that's my, obviously I'm not a psychologist, but that's my kind of comment from, as like a client, <laughs> from like a client perspective. Um, so I love to hear your thoughts on that, Dr. Incho. But also things like, like I said, like somatic movement. So, and, and like mind-body connection practices. So mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, there's a lot of research that talks about how that being done in a culturally competent, even like community spaces with other folks who identify in ways that you identify can be super, super um, um, beneficial for people of color. Like I think about the article by Danielle King, Abdi Fatah Ali, Courtney McClooney, and Courtney Bryant. And they talk about, um, in their article, recovery and rest. Mm -hmm. And they suggest that employees, right? So black employees take it upon ourselves to say no, to enact boundaries and to uh, take it upon ourselves to find spaces where we feel safe to engage in recovery and growth and in resting. And so I think that those are really, really helpful. Of course, it would be helpful to have organizations that are supportive of that, that make it feel like less risky for us to enact our boundaries, for Black employees to say no, um, to create space and to advocate for oneself. But I think those are things that we can do in the workplace. And I think that by engaging in those kinds of um, supportive spaces, we are able to show up in relationship with our colleagues, right, in ways that are more authentic. And we are able to negotiate our spaces in ways that are more positive and that allow for Black employees to thrive. So we have, um, you know, a, certainly in common a passion for mind-body uh, practices, somatic practices, as I often like to talk about them in my research. And certainly yoga has been something that I know that I have benefited greatly from over the past 20 some odd years. Um, and when I was in your class, Dr. Johnson, you invited me to talk about a recent paper that I published with my collaborator, Karen Locke, we were talking about breaking the, the cycle of overwork and recuperation. So I spent a lot of time in the recovery literature. And so one of the things, and not that recovery is bad, I'm not going to suggest that at all, but one of the things that we suggest in our paper and what we found was beneficial from engaging in the, the, the somatic practice that we did was yoga, but we would say that there are so many out there that have similar sentiments is 
you know, we push ourselves a lot as individuals, specifically those of us who have um, amassed certain number of degrees in our lives as we keep striving. But sometimes what that means is we push ourselves to the point of um, unhealthy physical engagement throughout the week. So stress, strain, gut headaches, the back aches, everything's falling apart. And so we look forward to the weekend where we can just relax and do nothing and take a nap. And so we talk about that as the vicious cycle of overwork and recuperation. And in this paper, we posit, what would it look like if we actually were to break that cycle and to get into a new pattern? And the pattern that we propose is one of activation and release. And so activation is, is you're starting to feel it, right? It's coming but you learn how to just let it go, right? And so I'm an advocate for so many uh, mind-body practices that teach people that so much of what we need therapy around and in, in, in new ways of being around is how we physically engage, how we emotionally engage, how we cognitively engage our, our whole bodies in the work that we do. So Dr. Incho, I'm gonna turn it over to you, the one of the one of us that's actually a licensed psychologist to see what you're thinking about what it is we're saying as researchers. You work individually with people who've been exposed to trauma. I love on your website, you have this great quote from Maya Angelou. Um, and in this quote, uh, she says, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. So I'm wondering about the psych the, ther the, the therapeutic process. I want to hear a little bit more about um, the, the types of strategies that you employ and teach people to employ in that setting and how you've seen people benefit from these strategies over the last year, year and a half. You know, um, I think at the moment, it's really hard for us to wrap our brain around what we are experiencing. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, from 1941 to 1945, approximately 400,000 Americans perished in World War II. In a little over a year, we have lost 600,000 people to this virus. The grief and trauma associated with this loss is, is just staggering. And because my practice um, focuses on trauma treatment, and I provide care in New York and Georgia throughout the pandemic. Throughout this pandemic, a lot of my work has been with frontline workers, with mm. the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory te technicians working in COVID treatment wards. So access to care for them has just been absolutely critical. But even for people who do not have that level of, ex of exposure, th this pandemic has proven to be an emotionally and psychologically challenging event. The isolation, the loneliness, the interruption of routines, the uncertainty, the, the financial instability can all combine to increase experiences of anxiety and depression, which can impair personal and, of course, as we've been discussing, professional performance. And so therapy, and of course, I'm totally biased, but therapy provides this safe space to pr process these traumatic events that is really just unprecedented in our lifetime. So how do I, in regards, specifically in regards to trauma, I want to just start there. Um, how I go about treating trauma largely depends on the presenting symptoms that the client is experiencing when they come to therapy. What, what we found is that two people can experience the exact same trauma exposure and yet have very different symptom presentation. So I'll talk to the client about the trauma 
experience, get a sense of their symptoms, and then discuss the treatment approaches that are recommended. For those who are experiencing, let's say, trauma symptoms, such as intrusive memories or alterations in cognitions or mood or um, avoidance behavior that's existed for over a month, we'll begin discussing two main trauma treatments that I used in the military. Um, one is cognitive processing therapy, which focuses on the connections between thoughts and feelings and the behavior and the body sensations associated with the cognitions of the trauma. Mm-hmm. And the other treatment I'll use is a prolonged exposure therapy, which is a therapeutic approach that teaches individuals to gradually, gradually approach trauma-related memories and feelings and situations, and in so doing, uh, kind of reduce their fear-based responses. So that's kind of the work that revolves around trauma specifically, mm-hmm. but kind of also kind of to touch base on what you both were discussing in regards to um, Uh, non-therapeutic approaches. I think it's extremely important to, even within the context of this uh, pandemic, to discuss and implement self-care and boundaries. And so when we can think of the the need to address trauma and the way this this pandemic has has, um, influenced the need for increased trauma treatment, but there's also um, day-to-day experiences that have been very emotionally challenging. So we talked about um, working from home. Individuals have found working from home to be very, um, to to work well. Mm -hmm. At the same time, one of the other things that have caused increased stress is the lack of boundaries associated with working from home. I can work from home and I can get emails at times that I would never address if I was working in office. And so being able to um, implement strategies Strategies such as putting in appropriate uh, business-related boundaries, being able to specifically address self-care needs. What are the things that I knew that I need to do to address my emotional um, challenges or instabilities I'm experiencing as a result of the, the pandemic? So making sure I'm doing the physical activity, the yoga, the things that help manage my emotions, um, that I'm tapping into communities of support. And I'll actually um, mention one more thing. In the past, over th- throughout this pandemic, I've collaborated with um, uh, institutions of faith. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, particularly within the Black community, we'll go to the church in mm-hmm. order to address some of our emotional challenges. And so what we've found is that a lot of the churches, a lot of the institutions of faith have recognized, yeah, but we also need to incorporate some clinical work. And so we've been pairing with um, institutions of faith to provide the spiritual support mm-hmm. as well as to provide some of the clinical uh, needs that are um, that are also recommended. And so what I would say, one of the strategies, the strategies I would identify is to identify the boundaries that are needed for your emotional health, to address specifically, intentionally incorporate self-care into one's day-to-day, and then to incorporate or to connect with those communities of support that uh, have found, that have been, um, that have served well in the past. I love this connection that you just drew, uh, Dr. Intro, between spiritual and clinical for communities of color, because we know, we, we this has not come up yet, but we know the communities of color, and particularly Black people, 
are a bit reticent to seek out mental health and well-being services, right? That's long been a challenge is, Dr. Johnson, you talked about this multiple generations of trauma. Yeah, and I think certainly for many people of color, though not all, seeking out you know, spiritual, uh, faith-based institutions has been helpful, but hasn't completely resolved the issues to the extent or alleviated the issues to the extent that one could be. And I do think, I mean, and certainly Dr. Inshaw, I'm sure you would agree with me since you're doing this work, I do think that more needs to be done um, to educate and provide mental health services to communities of color who have not necessarily um, always grown up knowing that these resources exist, might be reticent to um, reach out to access them because the person may not look like them and maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. Um, but I, I love that, that you're doing this work to connect the two because I certainly know that these communities could benefit from these resources that so many other communities are benefiting um, from. Uh, Dr. Johnson, I want to turn to you um, and just get your perspective on anything that Dr. Incho has been saying. I saw you nodding as he was talking about the spiritual side. And I know as you think about your own practice as somebody who cares passionately about mind, mind body, so much of that, um, you know, which is not necessarily religious based when we talk about some of the mind body practices that you're engaged in, it does come from a point of spirituality and connection. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I was over, I was just over here nodding my head and everything you were saying, um, because I thought it was really interesting. And thank you for reminding us of this and how even though so many people, so many in the you know professionals were able to work from home, there's another level of identity work that comes from working at home, right? In terms of wanting, you know, how much of your personal space do you want to be shown, et cetera, et cetera. But also bringing us back to this idea of the boundaries being blurred and how, it can invite in even more of this overwork that Steph, you, and Karen Locke have done. We did this uh, recently published this uh, paper on, and so it kind of showed us to ourselves. I feel this 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 past year and a half, where you know, on the one hand, some folks get to go work from home, and it feels like it, it, it might be a respite. But what ends up happening is. It, that is used as a way to pump more and for people to people start to feel less secure in their jobs because they're not sure if they're going to lose their jobs because we're in a global pandemic. And now um, I'm working or many people are working, you know, overtime. And when we layer that with race-based trauma and we think about the expectations for people in black and brown bodies over time, what those expectations have been in terms of overworking already, it's almost like a fertile ground for burnout and stress and things of that nature. And so for the things that you talked about in terms of the self-care and the boundary setting, I feel are really, really important. But also this idea of the, the like spiritual, as you were talking about going into churches and trying to build partnerships, it, my dad does a lot of work around um, nonprofit agencies also and trying to help them to connect with, understand, like basically undoing the stigma around mental health um, and support around mental health. And just it just reminds me of, like, again, historically, the lack of trust, perhaps, mm -hmm. and this need to rebuild the trust because historically, the understanding may be for many people that if you mention that something is going on mentally, are they going to take me away somewhere? Are they going to put me up somewhere? Like, am I going to be punished for admitting that I need help? 
And so I think it's so great to begin to like dispel some of those myths and to um, to help rebuild the trust between the community um, through the, by thinking about this connection of spiritual and mental health. So I think it's great. Well, the reality is that's what used to happen, right? Is the minute somebody admitted some mental health challenge, we institutionalized them. Yeah. So it's not without cause that you have entire communities of people who are mistrustful uh, of the system. Um, and right. so certainly... We're, we're becoming better. We're not amazing yet, but we're starting to understand that there are other ways. All right, so I've got one last question for both of you. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking a lot about this myself. I'm always trying to get people to think about what organizations should do, what individuals and managers should do. I want to talk about self-advocacy. And I don't think it's something that we spend enough time talking about. And, and clearly, because there's reasons why people might have a hard time advocating for themselves, fear of retaliation, repercussion, losing their job, et cetera. But I want to talk about self-advocacy and its importance in the workplace, particularly when it comes to maintaining mental health and well-being. So I'm going to go to you, Dr. Incho, and I want you to help us to understand from your perspective, what can we do, uh, people who want to advocate for their own mental, wealth and, mental health and well-being at work? Um, what can they do? Where can they begin to start if the idea of sort of speaking up for myself and advocating for my own mental health and well-being feels a little bit intimidating? Well, the first thing I would tell people is to check for mental health infrastructure that may already exist in their workspace. Mm -hmm. um, for example, every single one of the HR leads that we interviewed for that uh, Filene study stated that their organization made use of supplemental services like um, Employee Assistance Program, EAP. Uh -huh. Um, EAPs are work-based programs that offer free and confidential short-term counseling as well as referrals. Some also provide follow-up services for employees who are experiencing either personal or work-related challenges. I'm in private practice and I'll have contracts with um, companies that I'll be taking their EAPs. And so you'll have the opportunity to work with providers that either that some are in-house of your organization, but then also outside of your organization as well. And this can serve as an, an, an excellent resource that can be um, utilized simply by contacting your HR. So that I think would be the first thing is to see what infrastructure is already there that you can make use of. Mm -hmm. Another thing that can also prove helpful and can be started by interested staff members themselves are peer support groups. Those groups, these are groups that can provide members of the workforce with safe spaces to share their concerns and render aid to one another. They can help promote recovery and healing while simultaneously providing staff the resiliency necessary to navigate challenging circumstances. And you know, another thing I really like about peer support groups is that they can be specifically targeted such that they address the unique needs of staff who face additional burdens as, this, as we have been talking, such as caregivers or members of historically marginalized groups. So these are two good places that I would start to address mental health needs within the workplace. So I wanna make sure that before um, we go, and I'm gonna to turn to you, Dr. Johnson, in just a second, but Dr. Incho, I am sure you are busy and have your hands full with a lot of, uh, a lot of work, but I'm sure people listening might say, he sounds really great. 
if I were interested, if I were in New York or Georgia and were interested in accessing Dr. Incho, how would I access? So what's like the best way, website, or if somebody wanted to follow up with you and inquire um, the need for services that you provide? Sure. They could just go to my website, which is nshowbehavioralgroup.com. Ensho is spelled S-C-H-O, behavioralgroup.com. And uh, they can get all the information that they need from there. Okay, excellent. And Dr. Johnson, let me sort of turn to you to help close us out. And if, if you would like people to contact you as well, if you have the space, the capacity, please also feel free to provide your contact information. But want to understand your thoughts on self-advocacy at work and what would you recommend based on your own research and insights and what you teach your students in this wonderful class? Yeah, I we often... Um, in the class, are we're trying to be uh, imaginative of new ways of advocating for self and with community inside of our workplaces and outside of our workplaces. And so just building upon what's already been said about looking at what's already available in the organizational infrastructure, I do think that self-advocacy is like super helpful when it seems like from like a theoretical perspective, self-advocacy should help one if done in a way that in, in an environment that is safe should help one to feel um, like they're on their way to recovery, given, again, this idea of trauma, making people feel a sense of helplessness, advocating for oneself seems like something that might help people to embody something that's the opposite of helplessness. Mm-hmm. Being able to embody agency. Oh, I can actually do something for myself. The lie that I that I was taking on and internalizing was that I'm helpless. The truth is, I can actually advocate for myself. And so, in in addition to, um, you know, uh, engaging in support groups, I would say look to people in those peer support groups, either inside the organization or outside the organization for advice on like strategies. So how did you do that? Have you ever had to self-advocate about this topic in your organization? How did you do it in a way that seemed to be productive and fruitful for you and for your workplace relationship, Mm -hmm. right? Um, If we think about how we manage our identities, that I think about that when I think about how we might self-advocate. And oftentimes there are people in our community and our in our safe spaces that we'll have experience that we can rely on and that we can use as we go about doing it for our own selves as well. Absolutely, wonderful. I, I know that I certainly feel like I have a greater number of tools in my toolkit as I'm thinking for myself. I've been in my house for, I haven't been in my office since March of 2020. And I'm actually, I experienced some trepidation about going into the office. Um, And so I think having your counsel today, both of you and your expertise on this broader issue certainly makes me feel um, like this is going to be a manageable process as I myself try to also transition to returning to rooms with people in them. Um, So I wanna thank you both for being here today, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Incho. Um, The conversation has has been an inspiring one for me. And I also think it's one that's going to encourage more organizations to value mental health and well-being. I think it's going to encourage more people to value more uh, value mental health and well-being, therapy and self-care. So many of these things that I think um, we're, have been largely stigmatized when we think about workplace practices, but I think as we've all experienced the effects of the last uh, year, year and a half, um, I think we're 
clamoring to find resources to allow us to feel better. So thank you both for providing us with some insights and some uh, some ways forward. And I also want to thank everyone for joining us and listening to this episode of the Knowledge at War and Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Uh, have a great day. Goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.